Why, hello. Welcome to the Theology Pugcast. It's great to have you here for this special episode. We've got a guest that we're very pleased to have with us. Unfortunately, Tom Price can't be with us today. Tom is not feeling well. Uh, He really wishes he could be here, but uh, from the sound of it, um, it wouldn't be a pleasant experience for him or us. <laughs> anyway, I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm a pastor. I serve a church in the Pacific Northwest. I've written a number of books. The most recent book is In the House of Tom Bombadil, and I am a senior editor at Touchstone Magazine. All right, Glenn. I'm Glenn Sunshine. I'm a retired Renaissance Reformation historian, a professor emeritus at Central Connecticut State. I'm a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. I, uh, I'm a ministry associate at Reflections Ministries. I've got my own ministry as well called Every Square Inch Ministries. And my most recent book is called 32 Christians Who Changed Their World. Okay, and our special guest is Rosaria. Uh, Rosaria, would you introduce yourself and tell folks out there in podcast land, a little bit about you. Uh, yeah. We have a lot of folks who I think are familiar with you, but I would imagine maybe 50% aren't. So this will, this would be a good chance for them to learn about you. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. Um, so my name is Rosaria Butterfield, and I am currently a pastor's wife in Durham, North Carolina. My husband, Kent, is uh, the pastor of the First Reformed Presbyterian Church um, in Durham. So we are members of a very small Reformed and Presbyterian denomination. Um, and I have been married to my my beloved husband, for almost as long as I have been a Christian, which is part of how I believe the Lord has allowed me so much victory over the sin of homosexuality. Um, wow. So I, um, it, my background is I have a PhD in English literature. I'm a 19th century scholar. And, um, and uh, at a certain point in the 90s, I was a tenured professor of English and women's studies um, at Syracuse University. And Syracuse had um, recruited me and, um, and mentored me and then tenured me in many ways to make homosexuality look normal. I mean, I did all the other things that I was supposed to do. So it's, it's not like they just slapped tenure onto nothing. But um, I... Um, I believed I was a lesbian. I had a, a a woman partner, and I was also a gay rights activist. I um, wasn't quiet about it. I testified before the legislature. I wrote policy that was rolled over into gay marriage decisions, and um, and and sadly, and I mean this, uh, uh, you know, I look at the world I live in today, and I see my fingerprints all over it. And so, um, so I, I am a, a writer. I'm mostly a homeschool mom and a grandma and a co-op teacher. And that's, that's my, you know, and I, 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 you know, I peel a lot of potatoes throughout the course of the week that, uh, I knit socks, you know, but, um, but I also write books. Um, and I write books because I believe in the necessity of Christians, um, standing in the world and and saying the 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 true and the hard things. And so the most recent book I've written, Five Lies of Our Anti-Christian Age, actually um begins with my repentance. And maybe I should just back up a little bit. I um the way that I always seem to get into trouble is the writing of books. 
Okay. So the writing of books, uh, and in fact, that was part of how I was indeed converted to the Lord Jesus Christ. I was working on a book on the religious right, and um, this was, you know, 30-some years ago, and you might remember that quaint expression, you know, leave consenting adults alone. That's what right. we said in the gay rights movement. You haven't heard that one in years, and no. maybe we can talk about why that is. But I really was curious why, um, you know, people like y'all just wouldn't leave people like me alone. And so... So in the course of, of working on this book, I met a Christian pastor who became many things to me, including uh, in many ways, the father that I never had. Um, mm. So his name is Ken Smith. He's 96 years old. He's still alive. Um, Great. He's very sharp, gives me counsel still. Um, and he turned, he was my neighbor. And I uh, met with, uh, with uh, Ken and his wife, Floyd, uh, every week for many, many years. Uh, to really work through my thesis of, you know, trying to get to the bottom of why people like you didn't leave people like me alone, why you couldn't just <laughs> let me be. And right. um, in that process, I came to discover a number of things. Um, and this was, um, let me say, it wasn't, you know, these were just dinners at the pastor's house where he very right. graciously gave me all of this time, which was amazing. Um, I came to believe that the Lord Jesus Christ was risen and real and alive, and that that would be true whether I believed it or not. That was a truth over which I had no interpretive authority. I came to believe that perhaps well, homosexual... Oh. Yeah, let's stop there for a second, Rosario. Sure. So that's a remarkable statement. Um, how, yeah. did, how did that occur? Was it just through the conversations with the pastor? or? No. Well, yes, but I mean... Um, uh, you know, I'm a reader. So I'm, if I'm working on the book on, if I'm working on a book on the religious right, I'm not a sociologist. I don't just like go to rallies and interview people. I have to read the Bible. And so I read it through seven times oh, in wow. a very short period of time. I'm a sort of binge reader. I still do that. It, it's, you know, it, it's no longer in fashion, but I still do, you know, it's, um, and, and of course talked with, with Ken and Floyd about it. And a lot of the the um just the assumptions i had about the the bible i couldn't defend anymore so i had questions about its authority i had questions about the the different kind of internal hermeneutics so i have you know my phd focus is really on hermeneutics um and then 19th century is my my historical field and um uh you know the authority of the writers i, I you know and ken was very willing to just give me anything I wanted to read. Um, and, um, and I also, you know, came to a, a sense of my own, I, I guess the limitations of a kind of logical syllogism for the question, you know, the existence of God and things like that, because even within the gay rights movement, of course, this is, I'm a gay rights activist, picture this in New York at the heyday of AIDS, which at that point we were just slightly over the curve of calling it GRID, gay-related infectious disease. Um, I was watching people die all the time. I was going to funeral upon funeral of unbelievers. And even as an unbeliever myself, that's a very unsatisfying thing. And I ran into that line about God putting eternity into the hearts of, of men. And I would find myself reading the Bible and saying things like, aha, uh -huh, that's right. And then thinking, wait, wait a second, <laughs> who just said that? Right, um, right. Um, and, you know, and, and I was, you know, gay rights activist. I had a partner. I, you know, I, my world, I, I live my life 
transparently. And so I had people within my gay um, world coming to me and saying, what's wrong with you? You are changing. Oh, wow. And I remember thinking, well, what do they mean by that? And, you know, this is back. So I'm 61 years old. I think we all decided we're all kind of in this. Uh, so do you remember the old uh, Franklin Covey day planner? Oh, yeah. It was like the size of a phone book. Yeah. And you would just. And so I, you know, of course, I had one of those. And I, I, I looked back one day just to say, well, I wonder why they think I'm changing. And I realized I spend two hours every morning reading the Bible and praying. Wow. Like, that's weird. Okay, yeah, <laughs> like, right, You can right. call that, you know, right. and, and at the same time, I still had a girlfriend. I'm still yeah. writing policy, you know, yeah, all that kind of thing. So, um, so that was one of the things that that I realized that it was uh, that here I am a postmodernist who doesn't even believe in truth, and I'm confronted right. with truth, like with a capital T, and I actually believe it. And the other was I could actually see why the gospel is called good news for some people. Like mm-hmm. in other words, if I weren't gay, I could see why it was all good news for the rest of y'all. Right, you know, right. it, it it made sense to me. Um, uh, but um. But the other, the final issue is really confronting, um, I mean, confronting my mortality, confronting my soul, yeah. uh, confronting my sin nature. Ken was very good at that. You've got two things yeah. you got to deal with, sin and sins. And then confronting my homosexuality, which required that I just, you know, just logically laid this out. Either my homosexuality is what I said it was, or... It's what the Bible said it is, and what the Bible says it is, is a a deed of the flesh, forbidden by the law, and overcome in the Savior. So that was the wrestling. And at some point, the Lord won. (laughs) If I can can jump in here, there are two things I think that are really important methodologically, I guess, in, in what you've said here. I mean, there's a lot more than just two. But one of them is hospitality, which I know is something that's very important to you. Without the willingness of of your friend to have dinner with you every week, talk with you, just being really open and um, uh, friendly and welcoming, this process probably would never have occurred. Right. The other is something that I don't think Christians always appreciate, and that's the benefit of binge reading. (laughs) Because, you know, think about it. Most Christians read a few verses or maybe one story, or if they're really ambitious, a chapter. You don't, when you read extensively, you see things differently than when you read them in small pieces. Both are valuable. Right. But we tend to do one rather than the other. And so, right. you know, for for any of you on the podcast, I would strongly encourage you to try that out. Yeah, um, I, I discovered this when I was working through Richard Foster's uh, Celebration of Discipline. There was a workbook uh, uh, that accompanied it. And one of the assignments was read through all four Gospels in one sitting and note everything Jesus says about prayer. Hmm. And that just seemed really intimidating. But in point of fact, it's really not that long a read. And I saw things that I had never seen before. It just came across totally differently. So uh, I I would like to highlight your point about binge reading the Bible. It's really valuable (laughs) and it'll give you different insights than you get otherwise. Absolutely. 
Well, since your conversion, uh, you've written a number of books that have been really well received by a lot of folks. Um, obviously, uh, your comment earlier about getting into trouble writing books, not everybody likes everything. <laughs> You're right. And if you say anything that uh, has some substance to it, there's likely going to be people who are not all that in it, uh, crazy about it. This particular book, though, that we'd like to talk with you about today is your most recent, and it's entitled Five Lies of Our Anti-Christian Age. And before we started recording, I noted that, you know, both Glenn and I have, uh, I think, an understanding uh, that's sympathetic to your outlook uh, based on our own exposure to, well, the word academe, <laughs> you know. Um, and uh, when... <clears throat> When you're immersed in that world uh, for a period of time, uh, you don't see uh, this as a post-Christian uh, culture. You see it as an anti-Christian culture. And I'm pleased that you titled the book the way you did. Can you maybe get into maybe some yeah. of the things you were thinking about when you came up with the title? Absolutely. And, you know, the subtitle of my 2018 book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, the subtitle talks about a post-Christian world. And you know how books are sometimes you revise forward. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, 2000, you know, book that's published in 2018 is really written in 2016. The dust hadn't really settled with the Obergefell decision, but right. Five Lies of Our Anti-Christian Age was written for moms and grandmas who have children and grandchildren lost to the to the satanic LGBTQ plus idol of our day. Okay, mm-hmm. it isn't. It is no longer simply. Uh, a kind of, you know, a perversion, an abomination, um, an illness, an option. I mean, you know, those were all words that we might have played around with before Obergefell. It is now our nation's reigning idol. Yeah. And Christians have to, first of all, get up in the morning, the alarm goes off, the feet plant on the floor, and you have to figure out what you're going to do with the idols. And um, I think the Bible is clear. You need to, you need to kill them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You need to kill them, and then you need to proclaim the gospel. Nobody went to the Mount of Moloch while babies were being dropped down there and sing Kumbaya. That's dumb. Right. We don't do that. In fact, if you do that, uh, all you're doing is you know carrying water for the other team. And so, so with moms and grandmas writing to me or showing up at my house or Costco um, or school board meetings where I spend my fun my fun Thursday nights sometimes. Um, <laughs> You know, their question was a really simple one. If Christ isn't divided, why are Christians? My my pastor mm. says we need to major on the majors, but we don't even agree on what the majors are. Yeah. My uh, my lesbian daughter has now decided she's non-binary and is raising my three-year-old grandson to be a girl and putting him in tucking underwear. And she lives in a state where I can't do anything. What happened? Right. And so I think... It's so important for people to realize that this is war. Mm-hmm. We are in an anti-Christian world. Right. We are not in a world of pluralism, no matter what the Gospel Coalition would like you to believe. Mm-hmm. We are in an anti-Christian world. And here's the good news for all Christians. You didn't throw the first punch. So when we say we're going to have this fight right here in the street, we're not being bullies we're actually trying to preserve a um, a godly gospel witness and give glory to God and protect our children all at the same time. So here, here's something I'd like to see, see what you think about, Rosaria. Uh, when it comes to this, I'm I'm a convert. 
you're a convert. Um, Glenn is a convert. Uh, We're first generation. Uh, I think some of this stuff has to do in terms of what we see with the kind of the, what I call the cool table in the evangelical world are people who grew up in the, uh, in the evangelical world and have, and almost have a kind of a, an inferiority complex, a kind of, I remember uh, Garrison Keillor reflecting on his childhood years ago and he ended badly, but, (laughs) but with regard to his growing up in a fundamentalist home, he said, you know, when I, it's like having six toes on your foot. You don't want to take your shoe off. And it's, so it's like, it's, you know, they, they kind of feel that way. And, um, when you're, you're not kind of dealing with this sort of, uh, sense that we're missing out on something, we want to be connected to, you know, uh, kind of the, the centers of power and, and have a place at the table and all that kind of stuff. When you when you're coming out of a, a, a you know a, a, a life like yours, a world like yours, um, I remember. So when I was at Harvard, I, I remember uh, reflecting on my own conversion, uh, and I said, I, I grew up in a kind of bohemian environment, and when I was introduced to Christianity, it was like the fir- it was like a breath of sanity. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's like I'm I'm actually in in some place that's sane for the first time in my life. And the people yeah. who were in the room with me were all progressives, liberals, and so forth. And they would just looked at me like I had two heads. But anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so what, do you yeah. think I'm onto something with that? Yeah. Well, I think there are a, a number of things. And it actually speaks to something, you know, the, that, that I've been just ruminating on, right? Because when people come to you and say, why, why is this happening? That's a basic faith and reason question. It's a basic historian and ethicist question. So we're all in it. And it seems to me that one of the reasons is people don't know what time it is yeah, or they don't want to know what time it is. So on the one hand, I think it can be a kind of overplaying of personal experience. But I mean, here we are three first generation Christians with children and grandchildren. Do we want our children and grandchildren to have our testimony? No way. Right. Right. Uh, no way. Uh, do we think that their testimony of faith is somehow illegitimate because it doesn't come with body memories, nightmares, and enough shame to fill more buckets? No, we're very grateful for the Lord's forgiveness of us and for the Joel 225 that he, he uh, you know, the days that the lo- locusts have eaten are now are now over. But, but we don't want that for people. But I think my good, my question is, why do we give those people the microphone? Mm. You know, like here, here, like it, the gospel, Isaiah 61, one through three, it liberates the captives. If you want to have a ministry to the LGBTQ plus movement and you're successful, there is no LGBTQ plus movement. So I, 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 you know, I've been just thinking, just trying to think this, think this through, um, you know, that book, The Great Dechurching of America. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many people are like, oh, this is such a good book. You've got to read it. And I, you know, so I'll sit down with young people because I'm a teacher and I'll say, well, I've read it. Why do I want unbelievers in my, to be my pastor? Like, mm-hmm. I get why I want unbelievers in my church. I want unbelievers to hear the gospel. Right. But why do I want them in leadership? Like, that's dumb. It's right. unbiblical and it's ridiculous. And so, so I, I think you're, I think you're right. I think we need to know what time it is. And I'll tell you, I keep learning what time it is, because when I say what time it is, you know, I'm talking about things like the Obergefell decision. I'm talking about Supreme Court decisions 
that have codified into law the three exchanges of Romans 1. Mm. And this is really Peter Jones's ministry, but I, mm. I love Peter Jones and I love his mm. ministry, so I yeah. kind of steal it all the time. So it's, um, you know, the, the Romans 1 talks about the, 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 ex, the exchange of the truth for the lie, uh, the, the creature, uh, the creator for the creature, and uh, homosexuality for heterosexuality, a world that's growing in its homosexuality is damned. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's cursed. Right. Right. So why are we all saying, Oh, good job. We need more gay pastors. Let's see how, you know, and, and, and I think we're many decades into the normalization of homosexuality. So that doesn't seem to really jar us the way transgenderism still does. But in 10 years, transgenderism won't if we don't stop the train. The reality is homosexuality and transgenderism are rebellion against the created order. And anybody listening to this who thought DEI and critical race theory was a big problem, I have news for you. That's like having a broken leg, and it's a bummer, especially at our age, but you'll live. (laughs) What I'm talking about is a fatal heart attack. Yeah, those are really uh, great things to to note. Yeah, Glenn. Yeah, there's a uh, sociologist uh, back in the 1930s in Britain by the name of Unwin, And he wanted to go out to prove that sexual mores had no relevance to civilization. After studying, I don't know how many different civilizations, his conclusion was you give up on monogamy, you give up on, well, heterosexual behavior, you accept homosexual behavior, Um, you do these things for three generations and the civilization will collapse. Right. And, and he was I mean, an unbeliever. It's, it's as simple as right. that. There is yeah. no exception. Right. And as, and I'm you know, count, the, as I'm counting on my fingers. Right. Oh, yeah, exactly. Here we are. And that's why we need to have this fight in the street right now. Mm-hmm. And that's why I gave my liberty address. And that's why I said what I said to the students at CrossCon. Because you know what I am? I'm a peon. I have no job to lose. So... And that's also why this book begins with my repentance because, Mm -hmm. and not just as an unbeliever, my goodness, did I say stupid things as a believer? Do you have any idea? Well, you will now if you read the book because I (laughs) repent of them Um, because repentance gives glory to God. And it's the only way of saying people mark and avoid. Mm -hmm. Don't follow me here. You write Mm -hmm. these things in a book, a book sells a hundred thousand copies. How do you stop that train? Repentance. That's how simple. Right. Let's take a look at the five lies. So uh, the first one you've noted here, uh, homosexuality is normal. Um, Lie number two, being a spiritual person is kinder than being a biblical Christian. By the way, uh, Pew Charitable Trust just came out something along that line here with, you know, how they do their annual, you know, study. Um, Lie number three, feminism is good for the world and the church. Uh, that's, that's something worth reflecting on. Uh, number four, transgenderism is normal. Uh, and then number five, which is an interesting one to, to end with, uh, modesty is an outdated burden that serves male dominance and holds women back. Each of these, of course, are, well, you, you've given an entire section of your book to them, but uh, we could talk about any one of them, uh, you know, for the rest of the show. Is there a particular one that maybe you'd like to kind of zero in on? Well, maybe I can talk about the theoretical problem that is at the foundation level for all of them. Would that great. be all right? Oh, yeah. So the great. theoretical problem, theological as well, and moral, 
is this invention of this idea that sex and gender are different. Mm-hmm. That you have a biological sex. I have a biological sex. I'm a woman, but goodness gracious, guys, what if I want to be an astronaut? You know, that I certainly don't want to be held down by being a woman. We have to solve that problem. And so we're going to solve that problem by suggesting that gender is different. And so that particular idea, which is not biblical mm-hmm. and it's not logical. Mm-hmm. What that has done is created the foundation for all of the lies that we are living out and that the church is believing. And it's it has a particular way of filtering into our theology. So if I can just plug a book that isn't mine and read mm-hmm. something on it, this is the New Reformation Catechism on Human Sexuality oh, wow. by Christopher J. Gordon. It is $2.50. It is very thin. It actually models the Heidelberg Catechism, which is a great catechism for how to live the Christian life. And it's specifically for people who are themselves struggling with their sexual or gender uh, perversion, sins. We have to call them that. Um, And for those who love them and want to help people like the person I used to be. And so the question is, aren't we able to make a distinction between biological sex and gender in search of our identity. And Pastor Gordon says, no, God established a natural order in the creation of male and female that is good for us as image bearers of a holy God. To introduce gender as a new category of personhood, separate from the biological category of sex, in pursuit of a different sexual identity or gender identity, is unnatural to the creation order and harmful for the purposes of which God gave us. And in catechism fashion, it is proof text by about 10 different verses. Now, that was, as I said, a foundational idea in feminism so that women could be, quote unquote, liberated from their bodies. And and think about what that means. It really means that God is like a mad engineer, you know, like he creates a bridge, but then it falls into a lake. You know, the, uh, so what, what I'm saying is that it suggests that somehow the pattern of male and female is okay. Okay, okay, that's okay. We can live with that. But the purpose of it, oh no, that's going to get some of us in trouble. Genesis right. 127 and one, 127 and 128. God made us as image bearers, male and female. So our image bearing is tied up ontologically with our gender, uh, which are sex, which is also ontological. Um, And then it has a purpose to be fruitful and to multiply. And what's so interesting is that feminism's baby, like this was the trophy of feminism. It has now killed it. Yeah, that's that's the remarkable thing. The whole turf feminism is dead. It's dead because transgenderism killed it because and transgenderism says we don't need biological sex at all. We've got gender. Yeah, I remember back in the old days when people would, you know, uh, you know, the kind of the nostrum is biology, destiny, you know, and all that kind of thing. And then um, so early on when this was developing, I I couldn't help but run ahead in my mind and and think of all the ways this could go awry. This is one of those things where you were right, but you wish you weren't. So (laughs) I would be in in settings where I would I would say this is going to happen and they would all call me, you know, you know, somebody who was making the air of, you know, the, the slippery slope and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm, no, mm-hmm. tell me why it won't, you know, and they, and they yeah. couldn't. They just didn't want to 
entertain the idea. I'm not sure if they were deceived themselves and just were hoping that it would stop without having a reason to stop, or if they just couldn't believe that anybody would do what we've seen happen. Uh, I don't, I don't have any theories. I'm just, that that's where it was. I do have a theory and it's okay. that, um, and it's not very original, um, <laughs> you know, but it's, it's, you know, it is for the Freudian idea that personhood is wrapped up with your, uh, uh, your, your, I mean, you know, your, your sexual orientation yeah. or your, I mean, and, and, and I, and sexual orientation is definitely in scare quotes here. That is not a real concept. Sure. Um, but it, it was a 19th century invention mm-hmm. and it, it, it became the thing upon which the church rested its anthropology. Mm. And, um, that, I, again, I, I don't think we were ready to fight this battle at the level of nature of natural law. And I don't think we were ready to fight this battle at the level of biblical anthropology. I think we were, we were focused on other fronts, but if you start with the wrong biblical anthropology, you've, you've already lost, um, so much of what the gospel is meant to restore because being made in the image of God, but yet also having a sin nature, there's a, there's a, there's a, good and godly job that we all have to do, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. and one is to take ownership of the imputation of Adam's sin in our life and not make the claim, which is what, quote, you know, gay Christianity makes, that if, if a sin is unchosen and unacted upon, it's not really sin. In order to say that, you have to throw away Romans 7 and uh, the 10th commandment. So, mm-hmm. You, you know, I mean, but but somehow we thought it was missional to just, um, you know, yield the moral language of the Bible to the left. Yeah. And once you give away the farm, you don't have the farm. Right. Right. You know, what, one of the things that I think might be helpful here is the history of the term gender. Yes. Because if you understand how it develops— you know, it, it, initially, it sounds like a reasonable thing. And actually, I right. think the original way gender was used in distinction of sex was, you know, had some some value. Um, what it what it meant originally in this sort of uh, early the earlier feminist context is what it means to be male or female in the culture. How does the culture mm-hmm. define the norms and expectations? Mm-hmm. That's that's actually kind of an interesting and worthwhile question, I think. The problem is it goes from there to the idea that, therefore, being male and female is a matter of what you do. It's performative. Mm-hmm. And once you get to the idea that gender is performative, it gets divorced from sex. And anybody who wants to perform the roles of a man, if you're female, you're a man. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you want to perform the roles of a female, if you're a man, well, actually, you're female. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And it also, it also, it sidesteps the whole question of ontology mm-hmm. and um, being made in the image of God as a woman and as a man. Some things are, of course, quite universal, but not everything. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I thought, Glenn, I thought you were going to go... Um, etymologically and talking about how the original um, use of the word gender was almost synonymous with sex as a, you know, like Genesis, um, um, the the genesis of a seed. It had with it uh, this idea that 
you know, you could generate the next uh, life, you know. And so the two terms were indeed synonymous um, etymologically. But, you know, the reason that in the book I much prefer the term biblical, patriarchy, biblical patriarchy, which uh, of which I am a supporter, by the way, over um, complementarianism is because complementarianism as a new word, a neologism, yeah. requires in some ways this, this kind of sex gender. We have to kind of bow to the sex gender distinction. And I, I just think it's, it's uh, really, really unhelpful. I, I think it's interesting. The only place feminism is alive and well is in the evangelical church. It's that's dead in the world. Fascinating. Title IX killed it. Yeah. And when that's the reality, we need to stop and think about what that means. You know, Al Mohler wrote a very helpful article um, with a title that's become somewhat iconic. Um, it was about Andy Stanley's, you know, completely heretical conference. Yeah. And the title was something like the train is leaving the station. Mm. And I think this really is prophetic about where broad evangelicalism is. Broad evangelicalism is happy to be on a train going to the wrong station. As long as while we're all sitting on it, we can have great dialogue. We can learn from each other. We can learn to ask winsome questions. Well, newsflash, Big Eva, uh, if you are on a train and it's going to the wrong station, your only solution is to get off and get on a train going in the right direction. Well, this is said something very similar to that. Right, right. Well, this brings us to something that I hadn't anticipated getting into, but I think it's worthwhile to consider. And that is, what about those of us who don't want to be on that train? Um, And how do we relate to the people that maybe just five years ago we felt like we were on the same page with? And you know what? People are dropping like flies. Yeah. And they really are. I mean, my, my, my husband and I had the great, and, my, and our children, we had the great privilege of meeting up with old friends from seminary. Mm-hmm. And it was so sweet, in part because their children are walking with the Lord, our great. children are working. And this is all of grace. None of us are taking any credit for this. Great. But because we had all been like dealing with so many situations of, people who have have gone apostate. Mm-hmm. You know, I won't use the word deconstruction because that is yep. a literary term and it doesn't mean the same thing. To go apostate means you're going to hell right. unless you repent. I mean, you're not a reprobate because you're still alive, but it's very serious. So so I know exactly exactly what you mean and I feel I feel that. Um so um yes, I, I I don't know. Where do you want to go with that? There's a lot of ways well, I, we could go I, with that. Know, there's, been a, there's been a number of people who have reflected upon kind of a, a, a big sort, and it's kind oh, yeah, of happening yeah. in a lot of places in a lot of ways. You know, there's mm-hmm. what we see in the larger culture, but we also see it in the church. There are important dis- differences mm-hmm. between those two. But, uh, you know, as a person who um, grew up in a in an environment where I was surrounded by progressives and uh, liberals, um, I feel like I'm inoculated. Um, And I think that, uh, you know, speaking of inoculation within light of (laughs) COVID-19, but in a sense, in a sense, it's, it's, it's like, I, you know, I, I, as I look around, I say, I can't believe you're going there uh, to certain people. Um, You know, why, why is it that you would even think, that this time the story would be different. I mean, how many denominations do we have to look at 
that you know have, have ended in right. disaster have shrunk to almost right. nothing and I think that speaks to a moral problem so I am not um you know I'm kind of a boots on the floor grandma so I'm going to answer it from that perspective I think you need to be willing to love your enemy and stop pretending that your enemy is your friend and it doesn't matter one whit if that enemy happens to have a ministry behind him or be part of a big parachurch or you know i was just i i think that we need to realize that the lord jesus christ did not drop you know spill one drop of blood for the parachurch i don't care how big and how much right. you love it right. it's the church and so right. i think we need to be willing to name names. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think we need to be willing to speak clearly, right? I'm a Reformed Presbyterian. We, uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith is one of our subordinate standards. And we talk there and about how the scripture does, is not manifold. It doesn't speak in a kind of pluralistic chaos about the questions that are pressing upon us today. We can speak clearly. And one of the things we need to do, I think we need to do, is speak directly about the theological ideas that have become slogans that are sending a lot of people absolutely in the wrong direction, potentially to hell. And one of those is a very favorite slogan of almost every parachurch ministry today, and that's that same-sex attraction is not a sin, it's a temptation, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you don't need to repent of it because you didn't choose it, and mm -hmm. which it makes kind of an interesting assumption. But anyway, let's go with their narrative. Right, right. You didn't choose it, um, and you don't want it, um, and you're not even acting on it. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's a it's a morally neutral temptation. You're to flee where, right. you know, it's a misreading of James one, right? You know, James one. Um, that uh, James 1, 13 to 15. And what they, they would say, you know, what gay Christians will tell you is, um, here, and I'll read, uh, do you mind if I just read it? Because my oh, brain please, is... Please, please go for it. I'm old. I'm old. Um, uh, <laughs> let no man say... No, you're is, not. <laughs> <laughs> tell my husband that. <laughs> um, let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Okay, now, the way that the gay Christian movement and broad evangelicalism reads that is, is they'll say, well, Look, this is making a distinction between temptation, lust, and then a sin that leads to death. And those are three separate categories. But none of the Puritans read it that way. No one in my, in my historical uh, theological trajectory reads it that way. We read this as the life cycle of sin. So first you have temptation, that is true. But there are two kinds of temptation. One is the external temptation, which is the kind like uh, Joseph and Potiphar's wife, mm -hmm. right? And from that you flee. Mm -hmm. But the other is the internal temptation. And where would I get an internal temptation from? Well, from the imputation of right. Adam's sin upon me. So this is sin in its embryonic form. Mm -hmm. 
it isn't, it hasn't flourished yet. It's not born yet, but it's still sin. Mm-hmm. And the Bible says there's one thing I need to do with sin. It's kill it. And I might need to kill it a thousand times a day. And I might need to get up tomorrow and do the same thing. But I can guarantee you, if you're struggling with same-sex attraction and you're sick and tired of these, and you know they're just kind of charlatans at this point, telling you that you need to flee and you know you've got no place to flee because the problem is here, not there, you start killing that sin and Satan's going to get tired of you. Yeah. So do you think, do you think it's some of this, really uh, serious that do you we've, think, yeah, do you think some of this is maybe uh, an attempt to provide comfort, but just is, com- is completely uh, out of touch with truth? Yes. Yes. I think, I think at first it became a desire to provide comfort. And I think that desire itself, we need to examine, am I really more merciful than God? Mm-hmm. Um, Ken and Floyd Smith provided me with a lot of comfort. I mean, really good meals and time and the opportunity to ask anything, but they did not provide me comfort in my sin, but they did provide me comfort. So maybe that's back to Glenn. Yes, let's provide comfort, the right kind. But I think the real problem, Chris, and I, you know, I'm, I'm probably going to, I'm sounding like you 10 years ago with, uh, you know, so uh, the real problem is that this idea has become a monetized slogan yeah, yeah. for some of our favorite campus ministries. Oh, yeah. I better not mention them. And because um, they're scrubbing, they're scrubbing their website right now. I, you know, I, I'd say, you know, one, it's amazing. You can reduce a, a, a convocation lecture to two words. But anyway, um, uh, and crew, those were the two words. If y'all are wondering, I'm not, I'm not much of a mystery. But yeah, and so I think what we've got to realize is that these, this idea, and it may have been born of a good heart or a a good idea, but we're not more merciful than God. So it was a dumb idea at the very least. Um, But now that it's become monetized, now that we've got sweatshirts, t-shirts, mugs, you know, now that it looks like Vanity Fair in uh, Pilgrim's Progress for everybody with quote unquote SSA, and they talk about having SSA like you have like cancer or a cold, except for you're supposed to know that it makes you a better friend and not a worse friend. Right, right. The, the, if our world and our church is growing in its homosexuality, transgenderism, and singleness, we should go to the root. And one of the roots is a misunderstanding of indwelling sin. Indwelling sin is like a robber. If there's the robber and he's outside, locking the doors might work. But if the robber is in the closet waiting for me to come home to lock the doors, I think okay. I need a different strategy. And we've taken a whole generation, and back to what Glenn was saying, how many generations do we want to lose, people? You only okay. have three, and you've already loved We're at three. So okay. what do you want to do here? We've taken a whole generation, and we've told them, flee from your morally neutral same-sex attraction instead of telling them, we love you. Now let's kill that dead, because that's okay. not who you are. Uh, Paul says it very well in Romans 7. It is sin. It is sin. Why do I do what I don't want to do? It is not Mm -hmm. I. It is sin in me. Mm -hmm. So kill it, dead. Get on with it. Yeah, that's that's In Christ. I mean, you you don't do it above your own strength. You kill it in Christ. Now, you mentioned monetization. Uh, Some Mm -hmm. of the things that Meg Besham has gotten into here recently with regard to sort of um, clandestine funding uh, of some ministries, uh, mm-hmm. pretty prominent ones, um, has I think uh, confirmed some of some uh, suspicions. Uh, some of the suspicions I've had, <laughs> 
But um, yep. do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. Uh, well, I, lo- I, lo- I love Megan Basham. She's a dear friend. And let me tell you, when they all round us up and take us to re, you know, reorientation <laughs> camp, um, I'm hoping we'll be on the same car and we can, we can <laughs> sing imprecatory psalms together. That's, right, that's, that's right. my plan. I think she's absolutely right. And she's an excellent, scrupulous, uh, you know, uh, journalist and, um, and she gets into the same trouble that I get into and it's naming names. And, um, if you don't do that, Mm-hmm. then you are being deceptive. But yes, mm-hmm. I think, I really do uh, think that many of our parachurch ministries are functioning like, like Vanity Fair in Pilgrim's Progress, and God will not be mocked. Yeah. Now, related to this, you know, one of the things, you know, you noted with Meg is that she is a scrupulous journalist. Mm-hmm. Uh, and being a journalist means that you have to go in and look at some things that are maybe not too pleasant to look at. Um mm-hmm. Uh, and obviously spend time doing that. And it's an important thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, one of the things that, you know, so, so there'll be points when, when I will refrain from ma- saying a name because I don't have uh, mm-hmm. all of my homework in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. That's different. That's than, different. Right. Yeah. Right. And I tell people I'm an English professor. I name names because it's called citing my sources. Right, right. So I, I don't know if that becomes that becomes a, uh, you know, no bueno. I, I don't know what we're going to do here. I, <laughs> but I do think, I mean, I, this might be another thing connected to this and connected to what Glenn was saying about uh, the binge reading. You know, readers learn how to appreciate the elements of how language works. And, and so we, we seem to live in a, in a, in a Christian quote unquote, maybe, you know, kind of a big Eva Christian, sometimes in name only, sometimes in theme only world where no one can understand what a synthesized argument is. And so, for example, you know, one synthesized argument would be, um, an assertion that I've made. And I think it is true that it is heresy. It, 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 and, and heresy is a good word. It's a church yep. history word. Right. It's a word that says faction introduced into the church. Um, it will it will separate the sheep. Um, mm-hmm. It's it it will it will lead people to believe that there's other ways to salvation other than the the gospel of the pure gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I've been saying it is a heresy to believe that your internal sin isn't sin mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it is it, it is a it, it to, to minimize and to uh, rationalize away the need to repent of sin is doing satan's work satan's the only one i know who wants you to not repent Mm-hmm. So if your favorite parachurch ministry is singing in in line that is a problem um but I think part of why we want to name names and speak it clearly with a synthesized idea is because it you can see how big the problem is. So right. if, if all we were doing is, you know, I can quote this person here and quote this, you know, direct quote, direct quote, we lose the ability to make, uh, t- to understand how pervasive this argument is. And we also lose the ability to make comment about what time we live in. Right. So when right. Title IX is now used to support Right. Men right. in women's <laughs> locker rooms. Right, right. We have a problem. Yeah. yeah. I, as soon as that started happening, as soon as men started competing uh, with women uh, in the name of transgenderism, I said years ago, Title IX's dead. 
Right. That they're going to kill it. And, you know, right. I, I, and I'll still stand by that. Right. Um, one, one passage you might consider about uh, uh, internal sin mm-hmm. uh, is God speaking to Cain before he kills Abel. Yes. Yes. Do you remember? He says. He is crouching at the door, the door, but you must master it. Yes. And, and sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. For you. Right. I mean, the agency of sin in this moment should cause all of us to take a great pause here and uh, take seriously. Yes, absolutely. Agreed. Now, as we look forward, uh, you know, I think you're a source of encouragement to a lot of folks, Rosaria. And uh, do you have any thoughts on maybe some maybe like the cloud on the horizon it's no larger than a man's hand you know <laughs> some indication that maybe there's something down the road that's good yeah. that we can look yeah, forward yeah. to yeah well i'm you know i'm post mill so i'm i'm one of the i'm one of those people guys yeah, yeah, you know yeah. <laughs> um um i mean you know I, I, that does not mean we're not going to suffer it means that sure. we're going to suffer as christians we're going to suffer for a purpose mm-hmm. for a purpose and for a, and for a cause and for our good and the lord's glory and and um, uh, yes, I do. I do. Uh, and I'll just make some recommendations if I can. Again, not me. Um, um, Brandon Showalter's um, uh, show, um, uh, what is it called? It's called um, uh, um, Generation Indoctrination. Oh, what a title. Oh, what yeah. a title, right? Okay, yeah. that is a great podcast. Yeah. And you really do, if you want to get up to speed about what's going on, you need to go there. You know, the reason that I, my friend Andrew Branch, who runs a terrific website that helps all of us in our little church, the reason that we go to school board meetings is really simple. We believe in being Christian statesmen. Mm. And we are seeing a difference. Now, let me tell you, the whole transgender movement thing, it's nuts. And should the Lord tarry, these days will be remembered in the infamy of Moloch. Um, And and therefore, Christians need to be the people who try to, uh, you know, in in the spirit of Jude 23, capture people out of the fire. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's a very simple, it's not scary. You know, you go to a school board meeting, you get three minutes. Um, if you're a Christian and you're speaking, you're one of the only grown-ups in the room. Mm-hmm. You speak for three minutes and everybody cries. It should remind you of the early days of homeschooling. You know, you mm-hmm. go in the homeschool room, you speak for three minutes, there's a math test, everybody's crying. You know, it's a, <laughs> I mean, it's not all that different. Um, yeah. But one of the things we also do um, is we invite people over for dinner. Mm-hmm. We invite people, you know, because you want to talk about people who need the gospel. You know, these, uh, the, the, the people who have gone, who started the path of transgenderism, mm. the parents, oh, the parents who thought that castration for a 14 year old son yeah. was a great idea. Like, yeah. These people need to hear about a savior and yeah. they need to hear about a world that doesn't stop with this world. Yeah. That 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 when the Lord returns, and um and we have this new Jerusalem, those who have committed their lives to Jesus are going to be restored with a body that could not be mocked by God. That fourteen-year-old boy is no longer castrated. That you know these are those kinds of things. And so you really, um, I think it's very helpful, and I think I think it's not very scary. I think Christians ought to live life with their eyes open. And it's extremely helpful. And I've had people say, well, why in the world do you go there? You don't put kids in 
and uh, public school. And that's true. You can't have my kids. <laughs> I have no intention of giving you my kids. But because you can't have my kids, I can speak with a certain liberty. You're not going to, you can't punish my kids either. Right, um, right. But that's it has, great, yeah, it has great, helped uh, my, my witness with my neighbors, including my neighbors who disagree with me. Mm-hmm. Um, you can, you can disagree, um, uh, you know, but, but but logic is a lost art. And as Heather McDonald said in her wonderful essay, you know, yeah. when Johnny can't spell gay, it doesn't matter that he is. <laughs> so, y- you know, you you really right. do. Um, so I, I would say, um, I, you know, we've got 17 states now that that uh, will not allow the transing of minors. That's a small gain, but it's a, it is a gain. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we're not going to measure this politically, although mm-hmm. that is one yardstick. You know, you take before you go to a school board meeting. But we know that um, this is the heart of the matter. This question of image bearing of a holy God as male and as female. And so we need to, um, quite frankly, kick the wolves out of the party. They might be the cool kids and they might be young, but I don't think they can go head to head with us guys. At least, I I don't know, at least I've seen a certain amount of room clearing when I try to sit down and talk with them, (laughs) a lot of crying. And, you know, so I think we do have to do this and we need to proclaim the pure gospel message that says the Lord Jesus Christ came to save sinners, of which I am the chief. And that part of salvation is living in the victory of sanctification. We're not mm-hmm. perfectly sanctified, of course right. not. But as our my, as, you know, Westminster Confession of Faith will say, sin is subdued sufficiently so mm-hmm. that you can hold your head up high Mm-hmm. And go on and be the man that you were meant to be and be the woman that you were meant to be. And don't feel that you are denied a biblical marriage because you have an indwelling sin pattern. That's ridiculous. That's mm-hmm. what Satan wants you to believe. Right, right. Well, that's great stuff. I, I think I know, we might go ahead, Glenn. A, a question that I have is, and this this is way bigger than this particular um a set of issues. I'm beginning to wonder if uh, even the label evangelical uh, has any value anymore. Right. I think you are spot on. and Or, you know, it, it looks to me like it's almost become a sinister label. Evangelize you to what? Right. You know, when, when right. Preston Sprinkle's Center for Gender, Faith, and Sexuality has to have programs like the last two are just, they're just doozies. They're just doozies. Um, humanizing the transgender experience. I think about that when I'm at the school board and I'm trying yeah. to get people to like not hurt their children. Let's humanize yeah. the, and, but the right. most recent was how to increase, um, the number of LGBTQ plus pastors. And, you know, ministers we have in the church, like that's both are out of Sprinkle's heretical organization. And, you know, why do we tolerate this? Right, right. And why do we tolerate things like Gospel Coalition giving this guy good reviews? Yeah. Why do we do that? Like, does anybody here have a backbone? Right. So, so yeah, I think evangelical has become... Uh, which is really sad, right? I mean, you know, you don't you don't want to give that word up, right? Right. You do not. I. I. I that's. I'm. Not, I don't want to give ground on that word. That is a. That is a beautiful, godly, biblical word. Like, and the good yeah. news must be pro- proclaimed. 
Yeah, if we if we don't take backwards, we're not going to have any any left. Uh, right. <laughs> yeah, I've yeah. I've actually pondered if there's an alternative, and I haven't come up with one yet. Yeah. No. Right. No. Yeah, it's like the word Presbyterian. Most people, when they hear it, they're not thinking of us. <laughs> they're thinking of those other guys. I know. Um, I know. Which goes to show how a, a word can uh, move uh, yeah. in terms of its frame of reference. Yeah. But maybe we just need to be advocates for good etymology. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, just, and I think we have to be willing to ha- play the long game. Right. And we need to be willing to have conversations with anybody who's willing to sit down and talk to us. And mm-hmm. maybe this connects to the last chapter on modesty. We need to be willing to reclaim the important place of the private, the yes. private dinner party, the right. private conversation, the conversation that isn't repeated on social media right. or, you know, re, you know, refurbished for the building up of a quote unquote ministry. Yeah. The, the private, those quiet private moments where people have the liberty to hear the still small voice of the Lord feel the power of the Holy Spirit emboldening their heart and change their direction, walk in a different direction. And here's the thing that we need to remember about calling people to conversion. We're calling them to betray their friends. Mm. We're calling them to betray their history. We're calling Mm. them to betray uh, their careers, their professions, the things that they have loved and still do love. Mm -hmm. And you can't, you know, that's private. Mm-hmm. That's for privacy. Mm-hmm. Well, this has been great stuff, Rosaria. I, I guess uh, one way to kind of wrap this up would be to talk a little bit about how people can follow you or, you know, is there any <laughs> way that that they can just sort of like, I'm not trying to uh, build your social media following so much as just maybe stay up to date with what you're working on and so forth. I- well, I don't have a social media following. I'm not on any social media. I'm I'm actually living proof that you can completely eviscerate me on Twitter and nothing really happens. I mean, that's I don't know, guys. I think that's kind of something you should. Maybe, maybe that's a, maybe that's your next book. You know? Yeah. Well, I just no. I'm sorry. I would be disqualified within the first two minutes if I were on social media. I'm I'm kind of a crazy Italian grandma, you know? Uh, so no, no, I need to, I need to ponder my words before I write them and speak them. You know, I'll tell you what I would love for people to do is not to follow me, actually forget my name. It's hard to pronounce anyway. Why, why commit yourself? Why commit yourself to a name like Rosaria Butterfield? Um, you know, join a local church, a good one, a, a Bible believing one, one with real pastors who, um, you know, I mean, in my denomination, our pastors and our elders take a vow to die for the doctrine. So mm. if your pastor took a vow to like increase the number of people in his church so that the lights can stay on, I'd say flee. Yeah. Um, right. But, you know, join a local church, um, homes, you know, take care of your kids. Um, I almost said homeschool your kids. I loved homeschooling my kids. I'm almost in my last two years of homeschooling and I loved it, but, but take seriously what it means to be the person who's going to be called by the Lord Jesus Christ to defend how you, uh, how you nurtured and raised your children. Um, make the sacrifices that you need so that you can be home with them. Value what it means to be a housewife. 
um, uh, in, encourage our daughters to value what it means to be a, a child bearer, to, to you know, to, right. to to marry to marry a godly husband, and um, and to pursue the things that God loves um, until the Lord Jesus Christ comes back. Yeah, yeah, that's great stuff. And it is possible to do all those things that you just mentioned. My kids are all committed to having big families and homeschooling yes, and that God. kind of thing. And the church I serve is full of young families who are growing and uh, homeschooling and doing what you just described. So in spite of the fact that uh, many people think that this is all anachronistic and can't be done today, it, it's that's not true. It can It can be done. And yeah. it's a beautiful thing. I mean, I've yeah. had, in some ways, I'm like one of those cats that fell off of the tenth floor of a of a building, and and is still kind of like scratching her ears and trying to figure out how many lives she has left. But, um, <laughs> you know, I've I have lived at you know as a quote unquote career woman. I have. I have achieved some pretty high ranks in academe, and I will tell you that I truly do count that as rubbish. Um, mm-hmm. I, I mean, and, and you know, I mean, a lot of it was I was an unbeliever, so I'm not sure. suggesting that if you are a Christian professor, your life is rubbish. That's not at all. I think that being a Christian professor is wonderful, but I will tell you that having the privilege of staying home with my children, raising them, teaching them, walk that I, I wouldn't trade that for anything anything. It was God's greatest blessing to me on planet earth, second only to being married to my husband, Kent. That's great. That's a great note to end on. Anyway, thanks a lot, Rosaria. We really appreciate you spending some time with us. And you need to get out there and pick up uh, Rosaria's latest book. Uh, And uh, I'm sure you'll benefit if you do. If uh, you've made it to this point and you're hearing my voice, thank you very much. (laughs) Uh, you've gotten to the end of another Theology Pugcast, and um, it, we do appreciate your support. We do have a Patreon account. Uh, Glenn and I and Tom, uh, we don't take any funds. Uh, our guests appear free. You know, they don't, they're not getting anything apart from just, uh, the, you know, an opportunity to, to enjoy our company. <laughs> but uh, if you'd like to support what we do, we'd appreciate that. We've got a number of people who do on a monthly basis and they're much appreciated. And there's a link in the show notes for that. And we will make certain that there are some links to books as well in the show notes. Anyway, thanks a lot and bye-bye. Bye. The Theology Podcast is a ministry of Trinity Reformed Church in Huntsville, Alabama. To learn more about the church, you can visit trinityreformedkirk.com, trinityreformedkirk.com.